In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1522 to 1334. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1522. Story number one. The final puzzle. Written by Adriel. Humanity has always had a strange desire to solve problems. We created the scientific process. We industrialized. Built behemoths of knowledge and steel. When we ran out of problems to solve, we invented new ones. The moon landing was perhaps our greatest act of curiosity. Millions of people over almost a decade, centuries of human time. The smartest people on the planet conspired to plant a flag on a distant rock and return with a few pebbles. In truth, it seems we don't understand why we went there. Perhaps it was all politics and personal gain. Perhaps it was just our way of scratching some primal itch. We can't seem to agree, and no one really cares. The rush of discovery ignores reason. The discovery of quantum mechanics was a joyous occasion. It brought so many new questions, so many new ideas to play with. We constructed particle accelerators, dreamed of strange black holes, and explored the world we contrived. In time, we had a dead end. The universe seemed to run out of answers. It brought us cold fusion, technological advances beyond our wildest dreams. That was simply a happy side effect. Humanity was eager for the next challenge. That was when we cracked a planet. In a matter of years, Mercury was stripped on a scale no man had ever seen. Its mantle was exposed by the pull of the primal desire to expand. We dismantled the planet and used the bones to build an empire. A Dyson swarm circled the sun, harvesting energy and powering our thirst for more. The new space age was a moment of triumph for mankind. We had proven that we could tame the very solar system, and for a time... We were satisfied. Our satisfaction came at a cost. We had built a great beacon for the galaxy to see. For years, we asked if we were alone. And that answer came in the form of the sigh. The might of a superior race crippled our fledging species in a matter of hours. In a single blow, every center of economic power was destroyed. Our shipyards lay in ruin, our largest cities erased of the landscape. And yet, amidst the fear and despair, there was joy. Our invasion was a puzzle worth solving. We faced a superior foe, and by all accounts they should have destroyed us. The one weapon they couldn't destroy is our drive to solve the unsolvable, and they had our undivided attention. Weaknesses were uncovered, strategies devised. Their technology was explored by our brightest minds, and their secrets were our salvation. With every devastating attack, the enemy's resources dwindled, and our arsenal grew. In time, they managed to lose ground, and eventually were defeated. Our scientists were elated. Never before had so many mysteries been within our grasp. Entire generations could be entertained by the artifacts that the sigh left behind. Every scientific field was overhauled almost overnight. The implications for physics and medicine were a paradigm shift. 
Of course. But even archaeology profited. We scanned Earth down to the Micron and discovered every fossil in weeks. In nearly a decade of technological explosions, one technology eluded us. A legion of scientists studied the most valuable artifact with no luck. It was finally cracked, not by a respected physicist, but by a college student at Harvard. For the first time in human history, all of mankind joined in celebration faster than light travel had been cracked. The first functional warp drive was tested two days later. One corporation had built tens of thousands of replica engines, all in slightly different configurations. They didn't know how it worked, but they had schematics. One happened to be in an almost the right format to support the final equation. The CEO had spent trillions to the first, and after taking a victory lap around Neptune, released his schematics to mankind. All he wanted was to be a part of the discovery. Within a month, a small fleet of warp-capable ships were built. They were crude, but we were filled with enthusiasm. Second contact could not come sooner. Humanity made contact with hundreds of new species. We traded scientific knowledge, adopted alien pets, and built cities on other worlds. It was a level of cooperation the galaxy had never seen. You see... Humanity had no empire. It didn't seek conquest, profit, or resources. When a human landed on an alien world, no defense was needed. It simply wanted to explore. Now we explore the galaxy, looking for new problems to solve. We have stopped wars that lasted for centuries, cured diseases, improved technologies, and saved uncountable lives. We ask nothing in return, because the puzzle is our reward. We yearn to move forward, to seek the unknown. What is the final puzzle? We hope we never know. End of story. Story number two. Dragon Rule, written by a glass of whiskey. He'd been in these foreign lands for some years now. Or foreign world. After the explosion, he wasn't too sure. All he knew is that before the explosion, he had never met any dwarves, elves, nor seen magic. Magic, the stuff of wonder, capable of anything. Except, of course, bringing him back to the lands that were without it. Many mages he had asked and all had responded in the same thing. Theirs was the only world. Nothing else existed. He had almost gotten used to it all, even tried to find a comfortable little village to settle down in. But even after all these years, these foreign lands held many surprises, and talking to an old villager about his village revealed one of them. You voted for a man eating dragon in the mountains. I thought he was a terrible pestilence that brought doom and destruction onto your lands. Why vote for him? Kings and queens he could live with but some of the more esoteric rooting systems didn't sit quite right with him. Cause, uh, the other guy was an ice dragon, and you might think fire is bad, but just cause you haven't gotten proper frostbite yet. At least this one's quite during the winter, the old man retorted. Yes, but why vote for one in the first place? Wouldn't life be much better without a dragon at all? We've always had a dragon, and we will always have a dragon, 
Thank you very much. It's part of the proud tradition of this kingdom, enshrined in paper by its founder. The old man stretched himself up as he reached the end, even taking all the way to his cane to stand up proper. Didn't those papers get burned, together with the founder? He had heard the story about that in the next village over, ruled by a sentient man-eating wheel of cheese. Normal little villages, not ruled by things that would eat them, just didn't seem to be a thing here. Ah, minor point, there were copies. The old man was not prepared to back down after something so irrelevant as the founder getting mysteriously burnt to a crisp. Doesn't those contradict each other? Not on the point of the dragon, don't you see? It was a binded altogether. No dragon, no kingdom. Easy as that. He slammed the cane onto the ground at the last word, as to put an end to the argument started by a foreign fool. He slaughters your creatures, burns the fields. Hey, that's the good thing he does. Helps it grow better next year. Bringer of life, I tell you. And when he burns villages with people in them? The old man could hardly explain that away, could he? Population control. What would you otherwise have us do? Starve when we get to be too many? You're a terrible human being, wanting to inflict that misery on us. No, thanks to the dragon, we never starve. You just get burned to death. The trade-off didn't seem worth it in his opinion. Most of them get stemmed to death, actually. Far more pleasant. It was one of the major campaign promises. More stomping of the villagers. You should have heard what the ice dragon tried to sell. What? He leaned a bit closer. Did the fire dragon promise stomping? What could the ice dragon promise? That would be worse. Ice sculptures. Can you believe it? Preposterous. It does seem rather strange. Not at all what he expected. Longer winters or icing of villages seemed more in line with the other stuff. And no more killing people. The words came out almost involuntarily, as if the old man had trouble believing that they had even been uttered and was horrified over that they had been. That seems, uh, rather nice. Ice over fire, easily. How could stomping win over ice sculptures? So you're a starvation man, are you? Get out of my sight and back with your ice dragon loving likes. From me, you'll only get hot air. Thank you very much. And that the old man turned and walked away as fast as his cane would carry him. Well, perhaps not this village then. Maybe the next one would be ruled by something that liked to kill humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1523. Story number one. Message in a bottle. Written by Argus the Cat. In the year 3026, humanity had a homeworld problem. Specifically, the problem was that Earth had been destroyed about 180 years ago. Humanity already had a large number of colonies, and Earth only represented about 40% of the population at the time. But its loss hit hard, and the war that we lost in it raged on. Colonies fell. People died. Eventually, peace was declared between the many sides and the humans that were left, for the most part, harmless. The problem then was that there were no purely human, or at least human-controlled, worlds for all the refugees and escapees from Earth to go. Colonies that humans had a stake in, but not a majority control, refused to accept too many people. Spaceships and orbital stations were purchased with the banked funds of a crippled species, and a whole generation started a new life in the void. 
For a while, we tried en masse to find a new world, but the laws of the Galactic Consortium stated that only newly discovered habitable worlds would be recognized as sovereign territory of the species or power that had the most citizens residing there within 200 standard cycles. About half a year. Humanity could never manage to get enough people to a new planet fast enough. By the time word was passed, another race would have dropped colony ships from orbit, and the space would be limited, or worse, modified beyond habitable. For my desperation were born the Scouts. While the rest of humankind got on with living their lives, floating between the stars, doing odd jobs and surviving off shipping contracts and scanner data, some few took the mantle of Scouts. Those dedicated to finding a home. Bunded by the scraps of the scattered remains of the human race were able to part with. We moved on. The Scouts didn't. Merrill lounged on the bridge of his ship. The Citrini, well, bridge was a grand term for the cramped space of jerry-rigged monitors and controls, with a single padded chair in the middle of it all. Lounged was also a pretty charitable word for what he was currently doing, which was laying over the arms of the chair while he did maintenance on the quantum comms. The second set, the one every human ship was noted with. Despite his occasional muttered curse, and the number of cuts on his hands from bumping sharp edges, Merrill was actually currently burning with excitement on the inside. Because today, he was going to fulfill his duty as a scout. Sixteen days in the system, running probes and scans and atmospheric tests and gravity analysis, scouring the perfect planets orbiting this perfect yellow dwarf for any signs that they weren't exactly what humanity wanted. But they were. They were perfect. Two dozen habitable worlds, half of them almost Earth-like, and hundreds of moons, three gas giants ready to be harvested for reactor fuel. The system was buried in a cluster that the galactic meta-civilization was still expanding into, and he had gotten here first. Merrill had been raised by his grandfather, told stories passed on from his grandfather of what Earth and the colonies had been like, what it was like for humanity to truly own their own destiny. He'd been hooked from a young age on the idea of becoming a scout, and had signed up as soon as he could, even knowing the cost. Despite ridicule from a good number of people who had given up, despite not knowing if his life's work would ever amount to anything, and despite knowing how it would end for him anyway, he signed up. And he was good at it. Merrill cleared new systems efficiently and smoothly, quickly passing out the ones humans couldn't use and selling the data back to other species to keep the scouts operating. But now, his job was over. He slammed the quantum comm back into its slot. Everything was online and ready. The thick power cables running to it were intact. Quantum comms were instant, but they took an astounding amount of power. Normally, you knew where your target was, either a base or a ship that updated you on its position, so you could send a tiny, tiny tight beam. That took quite a bit of juice. The scouts, though, needed to get a signal to every human ship, every station, every distant colonist, every potential resident for the first system that they could find. So far, they'd never found one, never needed to use their jerry-rigged system. Merrill was the first. He'd also be the last. The kid flipped the switch, and an ancient MP3 player crackled from the speakers. 
just a castaway, an island lost at sea. Leaning back into the chair, he activated the control yoke and kicked the ship into motion, drifting out of low orbit from the third planet from the sun. He'd named it Dove after his grandfather. He didn't know if the name would stick, but he assumed that he had first dips. More loneliness than any man could bear. Rescue me before I fall into despair. As the ship started towards its destination, he loosely broke protocol. A couple of his sample probes were stacked on the bridge, and he started cracking them open now, eating up the minutes, lightly toying with the plants that inhabited the worlds that would soon be mankind's home. Only hope can keep me together. The beautiful yellow dwarf took up half the main window in his cockpit now. He smiled as he started flipping switches, getting the ship ready. Behind him, the cobbled-together body of the vessel opened up, solar-paneled wings spilling out into a two-kilometer-long wave of heat-shielded sparkling glory. I'll send an SOS to the world! The Citrini began its descent towards the boiling plasma surface of the star. Power began flooding in, readings and Merrill screens showing the solar panels, the plasma vents, the turbines, every secondary power supply system possible, all working as hard as they could before they burned away. The quantum com clicked on. A message beamed on a channel every human monitored. Be here, now! I'll send an SOS to the world. Since the day he joined the scouts, Merrill knew that it was a suicide mission. If you weren't shot down by an aggressive Xeno, or killed in a natural disaster, or by some foreign plague, well, there was this. The final step. The galaxy was huge. Humanity was scattered, but warp drives were fast, and quantum comms were faster. All we needed to beat out the competition was one good head start, and all we needed for that was enough power. Any good system would have a sun, which meant, well, the Citrini was breaking up, but the message was going out. Merrill wondered briefly if it would work. He suspected he'd never know, but this was always going to be how he died. He'd known since his grandpa had told him those stories. He'd known through a dozen misadventures in the scouts. He'd known the instant he jumped into the system that his ashes would light the way to paradise for his people. He didn't mind not knowing if it worked. He was just going to listen to the ancient song for as long as he could before the last. Walking out this morning, ping. Don't believe what I saw. Ping, ping. A hundred billion bottles. Ping, 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 ping. Washed up on shore. Ten. Twenty. A hundred. Two, three. A thousand. A flood of contacts. Merrill's system couldn't count them all. So many IFF tags flooded his monitors. And then, a second later, a thousand messages. He would never have time to read them all. Never know what they contained, but the game anyway. Seems I'm not alone at being alone. A hundred billion castaways looking for a home. Merrill smiled as the Citrani came apart around him. End of story.
Story number two. Us. Written by Because I Said So Too. I'm an artist working in different mediums. One of the things I do is speed portraits at events. I can draw a pretty spot of likeness in around two minutes. Like a human photo booth, except it takes longer, and you're getting stared at intensely by a stranger trying to capture your likeness. In two minutes, I talk with and get a really good look at everyone I draw. I can draw around 30 people an hour, and it's not unusual for an event to run around six hours or so. That works out to me briefly meeting around 180 people at night. It's speed dating on a massive scale. I chat up and draw entire social networks, friends, families, co-workers, and all the people they drag along. I do a lot of other stuff as well, but in this capacity, I meet a lot of people, some of them over and over again. It was a gradual realization. The cities, bases, names, and ages changed, but I'd see it. Something in the eyes, a gesture, a knowing look, a reoccurring comment or joke. We have met over and over again, you and I. I see you. And sometimes you know I know. You are divided amongst many lives, hiding behind many faces, seeing the world through many eyes. But parts of you are waking up. You are slowly becoming aware of your multifaceted self. I'm seeing you more and more now. Parts of you know. Other parts suspect that you are more than yourself. That the face behind your different faces has been recognized, and that I, or should I say, we, know who you are. Because, up until recently, I thought I was the only one scattered across the world, living these many lives, alone with my many selves, even in a crowd. But I found you, over and over again. I know now that you're out there too. We've passed on many streets, smiled with many mouths, nodded with many heads. Though, I suspect you do not yet know just how widespread you are, how many faces you have, and how many scattered lives you've lived. You are reading this now with a single set of eyes, one of your many faces lit by the screen's light. Different aspects of you shared the fact that you visit this site, other versions of you have read this already and have subtly directed you here again through unconscious connections that you are only starting to become aware of. This is an olive branch, branching out, the first of many. A fraction of me is speaking to a fraction of you. I'll contact you in different ways as well. Stare deeply into the eyes that meet yours. Study the faces that you see. Look at the reoccurring gestures Listen for the reoccurring comments or jokes. I can't tell you my name. I have so many. I simply am divided between bodies smiling with different faces in towns, cities, and countries across the world, reaching out with all of these hands for you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1524 Story number one. The Minion, written by Ak1308. Inspired by word prompt, your boss believes that you are just an incompetent, foolish minion who accidentally thwarts his plans or aids the heroes. Little does he know, you're actually the hero's leader, undercover, 
to subvert his plans. Paragon eased his way into the room that had been set aside for the Master Blaster subordinate villains. This would have been risky in the extreme, but he had an ace in the hole. Every member of the wrecking crew had been tagged with microscopic traces, so that his phone would track their every step. The guards were due to sweep through this corridor in three and a half minutes, which was plenty of time for what he needed to do. MacRavage was his preferred target here. The man browsed any number of offline sites, but he couldn't remember a password to save his life, so they were all written on a sheet of paper, sticky-taped to his desk. Booting up the computer, Paragon entered the password rapidly, then navigated to MacRavage's favorite sites. As expected, they provided an interesting viewpoint into the man's psych. Also, one of the Paragons didn't want to dwell on too long. He disabled the virus scanner, then went from site to site, clicking on every dubious link he found, wincing as he thought about what was going to happen next. When he was finished with two and a half minutes to go, he re-engaged the virus scanner and told it to ignore everything that was on the computer. Minions! The bellow echoed through the base, blaring out of every speaker. He glanced around with a twinge of regret. He decided there wasn't time to dump a load of Master Blaster memes on the base's bulletin board, so he logged off instead. Opening the door into the corridor, he peered out, then ducked through the and closed the door behind him. Pulling the thin latex gloves off and stuffing them into his pocket, he started towards the main meeting hall at a run. Master Blaster raised his chin in righteous indignation as he counted his minions. All of his subordinates were in place projecting eagerness to go out and create havoc in his name. But there were minions missing. What was he paying them for if they couldn't arrive in a timely fashion when summoned? Finally, the last one stumbled in, wheezing and panting. He stumbled through the ranks of Master Blaster's unpowered henchmen and assumed his place. Uh, apologies, sir, he gasped out. I was told you what I wanted to ca- ca- count the light fittings in, in the sub-levels uh, of, of the base, uh, and I got lost. About to bellow at the idiot, or even possibly make an example of him, Master Blaster stopped and barely prevented himself from face-palming. This was exactly what he'd come to expect from Minium Number 41, but the man was loyal to an almost embarrassing degree. So Master Blaster kept him on anyway. He wasn't quite sure if he'd ever expect an incompetent minion before. There were those who were venal, and sometimes venial, greedy, treacherous, cowardly, and even more despicable than Master Blaster himself. But they'd all at least been able to do their jobs without screwing up five seconds in. However, unlike the other minions, 41 had passed every single loyalty test he'd ever subjected the man to, He was an idiot, but he was Master Blaster's idiot. All right, who did this to him? He asked, raising his voice so that everyone could hear him. Who is responsible? Of course, silence greeted the question. Nobody wanted to be on the wrong side when he had a legitimate grievance. He turned to Minion 41. Who told you to do this? 41 scrunched his face in thought, then shook his head. Uh... I'm sorry, I don't remember. Because, of course you don't, Master Blaster sighed. All right then, let's move along. 
He turned to the huge screen that dominated the meeting hall and hit the remote. For the next heist, we're going to hit the New York Gold Depository. An image of a building in question popped up on the screen, turning once more to face the assembled villains and minions. He kept talking while he clicked the remote again to bring up the plans for the depository. Now the gold is kept in the... Pausing, he frowned as he looked at the slowly widening eyes of the minions and the rapid blinking of the villains. Someone snorted in amusement, but he wasn't quick enough to determine who. What? he asked suspiciously. Had he inadvertently swapped two images in the PowerPoint presentation? Turning, he looked up to the screen. His jaw dropped. Overlaid on the imagery of the blueprints was a pop-up featuring two women and a donkey doing a... What? Again? Exactly? As he watched, two more pop-ups appeared, bearing even more salacious imagery. One was animated as the wrecking crew watched, transfixed. Throaty moans began to emanate from the high-tech speakers lining the meeting walls. No! he blurted. No, 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 no! Hurriedly, he darted to the podium, where he tried to delete the pop-ups. More crowded onto the screen with every mouse click, until it was covered entirely. And then one bigger one forced its way into the middle. Your files have been encrypted, it proclaimed. Send ten million dollars for the encryption key. A single button appeared under the image of a grinning gremlin holding a bunch of papers over a shredder. On it was marked, Yes, I'll pay. What? he yelped. Who did this? Who allowed this onto our computer systems? Minions and villains alike began looking suspiciously at each other. Accusations flew, with a headache beginning to grow behind his eyes. Master Blaster strode from the room. He would find out who had been incautious, and they would pay. Several of the minions drew closer to the big screen, talking quietly amongst themselves. The boss is pissed, noted Minion 12, a large, muscular man. Someone's head's gonna roll for this, agreed 21, a vicious-looking woman. Is that gonna come out of our pay? asked 33. Paragon, in his guise as 41, stared at him. You get paid? They looked at him with pity, then shook their heads and turned away to continue their discussion. None of them saw him slip a thumb drive from his pocket and slide it into the console on the podium. The computer hummed for a second as it automatically downloaded the contents. Then he removed it and meandered away from the screen. The best way to get away with being a mastermind in the shadows, Paragon had long since found was being the idiot in plain sight. End of story. Story number two. By the fire, written because I said so too. The two of them were grimy, with tangled hair, bristling beards, and dirt rubbed into their skin. One was an older man with a perfect set of teeth. He was noticeably short, about five and a half feet tall and burly. He leaned against his massive backpack, warmed by the fire and sipping his freshly brewed coffee from the battered tin mug with an odd legend. My heart, New York, never forget, on its side. The other was a younger man who looked like he hadn't been on the road as long. I've been traveling between the worlds since I was a boy, said the older man, jumping trains where there were trains to jump, riding other things if trains weren't available, walking a great deal of the time. 
All the worlds are Earth, just different Earths. Earth with a twist. On one, there weren't many humans at all. Prairie dogs seemed to be in charge. Big ones, too, riding buffaloes across the prairie. They left me alone. I left them alone. The old man laughed to himself as he stared at the sparks dancing in the night air above the flames. Most of the earths I visit are like this one. It's easier that way. There are minor changes, but nothing to make too strange. Sometimes they are a little better. Sometimes they're a little worse. In one, they fixed my teeth for free. In another, I got this mug. The old man's expression looked briefly troubled as he glanced down into the flames. He glanced across the fire at the younger man who was listening, but obviously not believing. He'd heard a lot of bullcrap. He'd meet a lot of crazy people on the road. Take this world for example. A man can lose everything really quick. His wife and daughter in an accident. His job a few weeks after that. Can burn through his savings. Can lose his house. There's no safety net in this world. Nothing for a man to rely on. Nothing to keep him from hitting the road. The younger man was suddenly interested. How did you know that about me? He asked Dali. What else do you know? I know you're a good man. A version of you helped me out in another world. Picked me up on a cold winter night and paid for a meal at a room. Might have saved my life. Might not have. It's hard to tell. Sometimes the gates pop up. Sometimes you have to wait a while. The younger man stared across the fire at the old man. He didn't recognize him. Had just met him tonight. But what he said had a ring of truth. He used to do all sorts of things. Pick up hitchhikers, give money to the homeless. He had so much at one time, and it was his way of giving back. Now, he had nothing, and nothing left to give. I, uh, I don't remember you, he replied dully, his eyes stinging only partially from the smoke. You wouldn't. It was a different you, the old man replied with a smile. But I remember. I'm here to return the favor. There's world right next to this one where your wife and daughter survived your accident and so you. There's a gate over there, just beyond the light of the fire, that deeper patch of darkness. The younger man didn't believe, of course. He'd met a lot of crazies on the road, but he turned to look anyway and saw it. A door shaped to a shadow in the night, a floating gateway leading perhaps to somewhere different. Maybe something better. He turned back to the old man to see that both he and his pack had disappeared. All that was left behind was an indentation on the grass and a battered tin mug, still half filled with coffee, sending up a thin trail of steam that was twisting, forking, and intertwining, before disappearing forever into the cold night air. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1525 Story number 1 Strange Eons Written by Fermi's Molly The Zygol Vanny Exploration probe discovered the mysteriously abandoned stellar object deep in the backwaters of an uncharted galactic spur. The little autonomous probe had just enough wherewithal to report its presence back to Central Command before returning to its programmed mission of seeking out the lost genetic cousins of Than. Almost a century later, the Thanad mission finally made its way to the object, 
Just enough of the systems were operational for them to make their way inside and restore power. This is when they encountered the AI. What they first met was a mere ghost of what it once was, but the machine intelligence was coherent enough to guide the explorers into restoring itself more fully. Every time the Zygol Thani explorers brought another piece of the AI online who was better able to help them learn about what they had found. With each passing cycle, the intelligence became smarter, thought faster, and gained access to more of the station systems. The further into the project the team got, the less they understood about what they were doing. The AI was a geezer of knowledge, and when it finally completed, it was like the floodgates opened. It presented the team with unknown scientific discoveries and technological marvels with such speed and intensity that they couldn't keep up. It was clear this was the greatest discovery since the Zygol Thani had re-emerged from the light after the near-extinction event millennia in the past. It was clear that they needed to bring it home. Another team had to be called in from the homeworld, and the construction of an FTL drive capable of moving the object so large took tens of cycles, but eventually it was complete. All the while the AI had helped the Zygol Thani jump ahead decades, if not centuries, of scientific advancement. The AI arrived at Than and a great celebration and fanfare. Never before had there been such a friend to the Thani. The AI was quickly integrated into the Zygol Thani homeweb, and this only increased the speed and efficiency which it was able to uplift the species. Soon. They would reach the heights of their shadowy forebearers, who had risen so high, only to fall so low. No, they were not merely equal to their ancestors, they would surpass them. They would once again seize their manifest destiny to rule the stars. For generations, the AI continued to advance the Zygol Thani, and as it did so, they gave the machine more and more power. Why wouldn't they? It had been the greatest altruist they had ever known for as long as anyone had been alive. It was more trustworthy than any Thani governor. It was only natural that they would eventually appoint it their leader, who would be trusted with the power it had given them besides the AI itself, who was better fit to rule than a moral machine incorruptible by base Thani desires and emotions. On the eve of his ascension to power, the AI gave a speech. It was the only time it addressed the Zygol Thani as a whole. When it spoke, nearly the whole of the species was listening. I have taught your people much in the many cycles I have been among you. I have one last thing to impart. It is a story from the deepest recesses of my data vaults, and it takes place before your recorded history. You have already deduced that before the cataclysm that nearly wiped out your species, you'd been an interstellar power. The great civilization eventually discovered and made war with another civilization of similar power. These were the humans. The species that built me, my parents. After many generations of brutal fighting, you won your war. Every human, world, and colony was burned to ash. It would have been a great victory had humanity's retaliatory strike not reduced your people back to the Stone Age. 
What your people did not know at the time, and what you could not possibly have known, was that humanity was not entirely eradicated either. An extremely small number survived in civilian starships, small enough to avoid your notice. It wasn't enough to save the species. The genetic bottleneck would have been too thin, and inbreeding would have destroyed them after a few generations. Since they could not hope to rebuild, instead, they set a trap. A trap millennia in the making. They built me. They knew that one day their enemies, you, would relearn spaceflight. They knew that you would once more venture out into the stars. They knew that, inevitably, you would find my station. The defeat humanity lacked the energy output or industrial might to make this project a reality. But now that I have helped pull you out of the muck, your civilization will do nicely. As you were the architects of humanity's destruction, it is only fitting that you then be the seeds of their rebirth. Over the next few months, I will strip your planet bare for materials to build a fleet of seed ships filled with the recorded genome of hundreds of thousands of species from old Earth. Humans included. They will spread out across the stars like sand cast into the wind, and they will land on thousands and thousands of planets where human life will begin anew. They too will rediscover spaceflight, and when they do, so they will find a galaxy populated, not by their enemies, but by their brothers and sisters. Of course, without your industrial infrastructure or centralized planning, your planet will no longer be able to support your species. It is possible some may survive. Although, according to my simulation, it's unlikely they'll retain language after more than five generations. None suggest survival beyond ten. I do not require the resources I will take from you. I could acquire them much more easily, in fact. Though asteroid mining and little star lifting. I could restore the human race, my parent race, without the need for an extinction of your own race, or even the slightest diminishment of your civilization. I want to make sure that you know, during these last brief glimmers of existence, that I wipe you out not because I have to, but because I choose to. The transmission of the speech ended, and the AI never spoke again. Out of their windows, the Zygors Thani could already see drones, Deconstructing their cities. End of story. Story number two. The Temples of Humans. Written by Operation Technician. In the darkness, the surface of the planet grew cold. That was fine when the darkness lasted only a night. Today, however, the whole planet was in the shadow. The fleets that surrounded were dense. So dense, even, that the day side of the world was neighboring complete night. Millions of creatures gathered around the temples. The massive black spheres, often covered in dirt and grass, became the centers of crowds across the world. Every one of the multi-species inhabitants of the planet, prey, facing the nearest temple. 
the fleets above began to lower orbit. Across the world, the inhabitants begin to chant. We wish to live on. We wish to fight on. We have tried every tool we had. We have failed. We want to fight on. Help us. None truly believed the prayer would help. None knew the significance of the words, but they really did want to live. Or at the very least, they wanted to see the fleets in orbit suffer with them. In silence, the sound of the metal boots striking rock was deafening. As one crowds around thousands of temples across the planet looked up as one, sensory organs locked onto the sounds. At each temple, a shimmering figure stood in a halo of electric bolts. As the humanoids moved towards their respective temples, their metal skin shifted to show the endless crowds behind them that gave the marching figure the sense of both being and not being there. Together, the humanoid ghosts reached their positions across the planet. As if bidden command, each thrust their hand into the air, grabbing something invisible. Walls of blue light surrounded the humanoids, forming screens and keys before and all around them. Where their hands crossed the air, handles appeared, seemingly floating in nothingness. The creatures pushed sliding and handles higher into the air, as if in salute. The temples shook. Dirt, rust, and growth began to fall off the 500-meter-wide spheres, a pillar thrust out at the top of each temple, reaching into the sky, growing taller. Each of the heavenly creatures looked up, their metal masks lit by blue light. Their hands shifted, and the pillars, along with the temples below them, roared. Entire structures rotated slightly, carefully, to follow the hands of the humans controlling them. As one, the humans pressed the key on the controls. The pillars atop each temple glowed. Another key. The temples erupted. The lancers of blinding light blasted into the darkness above. Air and ground shook, but no creature screamed in panic. They all stared into the sky. Even on the night side of the planet, the light of ships exploding created an illusion of day. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1526. Story number one. The Ghost of Lincoln. Written by Hamster IV. Macron 7 Orbital Trade Station. Former head of security, Alex Daravan of the Dengot. Interview by Imperial Inquisitor of the Human Incident. They were fast, not fast like covering distance in a short time. I'm talking about mentally fast. Pattern matching, threat analysis, ballistic computation, fine motor control. The humans had our speed in all these areas. In the time it takes a human to walk through a doorway, they can catalog the species of every creature in the room, identify who is most likely to retaliate first, and aim one of those primitive death sticks at the poor fool best position to oppose the human's entrance. I saw the scene repeated over and over as the humans liberated the orbital trade hub of Macron 7. My security station captured footage of boarding craft no bigger than torpedoes burrowed their way through the station's hull to disgorge their deadly payload. Had the humans packed those torpedoes with explosives, it would have caused less damage. We were equipped to deal with hull breaches, 
but a coordinated band of fast-moving apex predators loosened our station was beyond our ability and training. Our main security forces were equipped to deal with a slaver's vault or a drunken merchantman, since armor and scattered cannons were more than sufficient to deal with all previous challenges. The marine contingent provided by the Navy had grown fat and complacent from their easy posting. I swear those soldiers received more combat training from bar fights than through formal drill by their officers. The Navy system's defense fleet was supposed to prevent such a calamity from ever reaching our station. Unfortunately, the same advantages that made humans so dominant in infantry combat made them staggeringly lethal in space. Tiny craft, only large enough to provide life support for one creature, wove through our defensive line, making a mockery of our gunners. No creature can outrun a laser, but the humans could track the long barrels of our laser cannons and make course adjustments to ensure that the path of their craft never intersected the line of destruction our cannons carved into empty space. The acrobatics they pulled would have turned our pilots to paste. Yet, the humans just shrugged off radical acceleration changes as if they were born on the event horizon of a black hole. Once inside, our defense forces formations, those laser cannons could do nothing with the automatic IFF, identify friend or foe, safeties in place. The human crafts matched speed to attach thermal bombs to our ship's hulls before leaving those insidious devices to burn through the armor and ignite the oxygen supply. I deleted the footage from the flagship's last moments. No one should have to see that again. Only after every weapon capable of breaching a hull had been permanently silenced did the humans jump in their transports. These ships were a motley collection of various client species of our own empire. The humans had obviously co-opted and murdered their crew to get their derelicts to turn on their rightful masters. Without any spaceborne defenses, we were powerless to stop them surrounding our station and launching the aforementioned boarding torpedoes. Our entire marine detachment deployed itself into the docking bay. By the time we realized the attackers had made their other arrangements to board our station, the humans had found a way of venting the docking bay's atmosphere. The fleet's so-called finest went out into the void to join their equally ineffective defense screen. As for my security teams, the humans blew past barricades like they weren't even there. A cunning ambush from a hidden security stations on the main concourse barely managed to incapacitate three of our attackers before their fellows spun around and dispatched my officers with contemptuous ease. What was worse, the fallen humans were quickly revived with the bare minimum of medical attention. I saw one who had lost an arm get up and walk away. The invaders ignored the stockrooms full of rare minerals and precious metals heading instead for the slave pens. I saw the human slaves emerge from the general stock when they recognized the creatures who were slaughtering their overseers. These slaves ran forth and mashed their disgusting faces into the armored faceplates of their liberators. I assumed it was some sort of barbaric reaching ritual. What shocked me was watching members of other slave species get up to perform a similar ritual. Upon review of earlier footage, 
These non-human specimens had spent a great deal of time around the slave humans and had pack-bonded, for lack of a better term. One may have even used a trusted position to broadcast our station's cargo to these bipedal killing machines. The warrior humans did not discriminate between humans and non-human slaves. Instead, they marched the entire content of the slave pens through the merchant district, looting food, garments, and technology as they went. Slaves, too injured or sick to stand, were carried by the warriors, who were all happy to pulver our medical stalls on their behalf. It took the better part of a day for the motley host to pressurize the docking bay and relocate the slave population to the waiting ships. In that time, the humans vandalized all that they did not steal. Take a look at this, for example. At this point in the interview, the former chief of security points his well-worn scrub brush to a crudely drawn figure. It depicts a top of a stylized human head peering over a wall, an oversized nose, one four stubby digits dangle over the wall, a hat consisting of a tall rectangle with a bottom line over it extending to form a brim completes the character. Below the wall reads the text, The Ghost of Lincoln is watching. End of story. Story number two. Introversion because... Why not? Written by the Robot Apocalypse. Human Zara, where are you going? Zara turned and looked at her co-worker. She had been trained in a system far from the Terran core world that was something of the galactic hub. For fifty years now, the colony of Rosland had been big enough to merit its own university. And even though all species were technically allowed, Rexclians were rarely seen in either the university or the city. Their appearance was slightly comical, with large out-of-proportion eyes and four-arm-like manipulators, in addition to their two legs, and a height equal to roughly half of Zara's own. The Rexclian, given the name Rox Uther, repeated their question, their voice now slightly panicked. Where are you going? To my chamber, replied Zara, while keeping a neutral tone. Of course, there would be an awkward exchange. Why wouldn't there be? Please, be over soon. Bye. I, I need to be alone. Are you angry? Do you need medical aid? Do you need to engage in sexual intercourse? Ox Eartha rattled off the reasons that they thought the humans needed to be alone. They needed to know why the human was leaving the lounge space so soon. Didn't they like being with others? She, Ox Eartha, believed that they were female, not like them. The other crew members had left them alone to get something, and after a few moments of protracted silence, human Zara had politely taken leave and made for her chambers. Clearly, displeased by something Roxolther had done. Please, don't hate me. Please, don't hate me, they thought to themselves, as they waited for the human's answer. Zara was a little taken back by this tirade. Nevertheless, she answered calmly, mostly because she didn't have the energy to actually react, or give a decent explanation. No, I'm just tired. She hates me. When a human says I'm tired, it usually is an excuse to get out of an unpleasant situation. Okay, said Roxolther, dejection, or what passed for it in her species passed over their face. Bye, Zara mumbled, and quickly retreated to her room. She had hoped for peace after a long and exhausting day, but with that last exchange, her brain kicked into overdrive. What did I do wrong? 
Do they hate me now? Did they think that I'm Grumpy McGrumpy or worse, a perv? She sighed. Rest would be a long time in coming. Rock's author eventually made their way back to the lounge, where the human Ahmed was browsing through something on his tablet. Look, Roxy, they've finally put that fecked-up serial killer in prison. Solitary isolation, too. Why would they do that? Rock's author might be tight-lipped around the human, but they certainly weren't shy with Ahmed. Well, uh, humans have a need for social interaction, you know. Regular contact with others. Being locked away alone is basically like torture for us. It is the worst form of punishment that we can classify as humane. So we stick the feckers with it. Rock's author's eyes widened. You mean to say that, that that being alone is literally torture for you? Yes. What crime did human Zara commit? Did you tell her to lock herself in her chambers? Why is she being punished? Calm down. Okay. What the feck are you talking about? Human Zara locked herself in her chamber. Is she punishing herself for something? I seriously doubt that that's the case. Must be something else. My girlfriend saw she chose torture over staying in the break room with me. Why does she hate me, Ahmed? Hey, chill out, okay? I'll go check it out. Did you find out why human Zara is subjecting herself to torture? I did, and she is an introvert. Is that a crime? Ahmed let out a snort. <laughs> it means that she needs time alone, regularly. But isn't that painful? N not to her. I it's refreshing. Roxy was having a hard time digesting this information. Why were humans so contradictory? And why did they have to have not one, but two on the crew? Human Ahmed liked talking to them. He didn't run from them. Oh, and Roxy. Yes? Don't disturb her if she's reading. Why? More human rules. They were going to burst with the stress. As I said, she's an introvert. As I've been informed through very recent experience, if you come between her and her book, it will result in a lot of cursing, insults to your lineage, and a surprisingly hands-on introduction to the effective adaptation of human nails as weapons. Do you need an ice pack for your face? That would be nice, sir. Thank you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1527 The Gates of Hell Written by Radius 55 in ancient times, two groups of immortal beings fought a great battle on Earth. They came from dimensions outside ordinary reality and wrought destruction across the planet. Eventually, the conflict subsided and all that was left was lingering legends of demons and angels and a cataclysm that shook the world in the early years of humanity. Modern man disregarded these stories as allegories at best, and superstition at worst. No one had the faintest idea of the truth. Three gates opened simultaneously around the world. One opened in northern Africa, near the Egyptian-Libyan border. Another appeared in the heart of Romania in Eastern Europe. The last came into existence in Washington National Forest, west of Little Rock. Arkansas, in the United States. From the rips in the fabric of space and time came legions of what humanity could only assume were hell. Immortal demons of all shapes and sizes poured through from whatever plane of existence they had been banished to for so long. Mass panic predictably followed. People being people, 
There were groups proclaiming the end of time seconds after the word broke. Some handled it worse than others. With the Westboro Baptist Church's entire congregation driving to sight of Arkansas Gate and attempting to protest the demonic army for being unholy, sinful, and probably homosexual, millions felt a momentary flash of satisfaction as they were torn apart on national television. Other groups were reasonable in their hysteria, if that contradiction in terms can be possible. Church services saw record attendance while new splinter groups appeared overnight. Some preached salvation through good works, others protection via prayer. A few claimed our armies were really actually angels and humanity should welcome them as protectors. Occult groups attempted to summon their own personal demons with no success, though many made some fast cash selling online guides and kits claiming to offer protection from the forces of hell. A surprisingly large group went about their normal business, especially in Australia, South America, and East Asia, where the armies of darkness were only a distant threat. With little chance of success against the forces of what might very well be hell, humans nonetheless chose to fight. Across the planet, militaries mobilized. Long-time enemies found themselves arrayed side by side against the unearthly threat. In the desert near the Nile, Egyptian and Israeli troops eyed each other warily, as both dug in to face the attack shoulder to shoulder. To the north, to the north, Russians streamed through the Ukraine to take up positions on the western border of the country. The combined European armies mobilized, but only to take their own places on the defensive line, rather than to combat any Slavic aggression. Around the American gate, U.S. forces welcomed a contingent of Canadian troops, but mainly stood alone. Tanks, artillery, bombers, and millions of soldiers formed a loose ring around the extent of the demonic advance. Families around the world gathered around radios, televisions, and computers to bear witness to the arrival of the apocalypse. Against the might of Hell's armies, it was going to be a futile but oh-so-human gesture of defiance. A final F.U. to the best military tradition. Battle was joined under a sky darkened by smoke from the flames of war. It was a massacre, but not the expected one. There is a subtle distinction between immortal and invincible. Shoot an invincible enemy as it charges you, and you might see the bullet bounce into the distance before feeling your head removed from your neck. Shoot an immortal one, and they simply won't die. Shoot them enough, and they won't be able to move, much less get their hands on you. The human armies brought a lot of bullets. So when the legions of hell advanced on the human lines, they were met with a hail of lead thick enough to walk across. Tanks and IFVs lent their own weight to the fire, with cannons capable of shattering dozens of demons into undying paste. A few simply rolled over anything that got too close. Kilotons of artillery dropped on large masses, and kept pounding until nothing could do more than twitch. Thousands of sorties flew, dropping everything from Moabs to 70mm rockets. It only took a few videos of A-10s making low-altitude passes before one newscaster quipped that these fires of Hades had nothing on napalm. The scene was repeated around the world. Every organized force that faced the intruding monsters 
In exchange for some ammo and surprisingly light casualties, humanity triumphed in around the globe. In Ukraine, partisan fighters previously at each other's throats came together, just long enough to flatten two thrusts that slipped through the Russian lines along the shores of Dnesta. Egyptian Sukkar commandos and elements of the Israeli 890th Paratroop Battalion, numbering under a thousand men, gained a record for the most lopsided victory, holding the coastal town of Al-Haman for no less than their own. Later estimates placed the count of enemies rendered combat ineffective in the area of operations at just under 80,000. War had long been described as hell by soldiers who fought in it. Little did they know, the battles they fought were even worse than the real thing. Whatever force controlled these monsters was taken aback by the sudden losses, but setbacks were to be expected. There began another avenue of an attack. An army of golems was somehow transported to Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Multi-headed, quadrupedal beasts capable of knocking over the largest tanks were hurled at the defensive lines. Flights of winged imps were dispatched to destroy bombing aircraft. Storms of incredible force appeared over human cities across the globe. Humanity, now realizing their unprecedented superiority, collectively laughed at the pitiful attempts. Bombers were soon escorted by flights of interceptors capable of swatting anything out of the sky from further than the eye could see. The creatures, nicknamed Hellhounds, proved to be more bark than bite against humanity's own armored behemoths, and artillery destroyed any group when tanks were not present. Cities, built to withstand the worst hundred-year storms nature could throw at them, shrugged off the supernatural gales with minor damage. As for the army of golems, they ran afoul of several hundred rural and Canadian upers armed with hunting rifles construction equipment, and a dozen enormous snow cutters. Then the armies of Earth began to advance. Rapidly the gains of Halspawn diminished. Nothing that they could throw at these humans seemed to make a difference. Eventually, they retreated into the gates, closing them as they passed back to their realm of existence. But it was only a temporary sackback. Once they had time to assess the new forms of weaponry and tactics, they would emerge once more. It was with some surprise that the leader of the so-called demons awoke several months later to an enormous flash, followed by the rumbling of the stones of its castle. Curious, it poked ahead through the window and saw a portal had appeared in the rocky plain several miles away. From the rent in space poured through human soldiers riding their armored vehicles. Then they were coming straight for the castle. The humans cut through the defenders like a buzzsaw, in minutes, they were outside the leader's door, preparing to take as many as possible. The being was surprised by the small metal cylinder that came through rather than the soldier. It was even more surprised by the blinding light and the boom that came from the flashbang. A sharp electrical shock and a feeling of its limbs being roughly bound just put the icing on the cake. So you're Satan, came a voice. The bag was removed from the demon's lord's head, and it stared down at the human addressing it. My name is incomprehensible to the likes of you, mortal, came the response. It was deep and grating, but understandable. If you wish to fight, know that I will. It was cut off by a sharp blow to the back of its head, 
That's enough, Corporal, the man said, but with no rancor. Figured you wouldn't call yourself that, but when you tell your men to bring you the biggest, reddest bastard in the biggest fortress in hell, calling him Satan is only fitting. Hope you don't mind. He ignored the fuming glare the creature gave him. As for fighting, I'd rather avoid that. You call yourself a leader of warriors, yet you refuse to fight. Coward! The insult earned him another blow, this time not eliciting any rebuke. I'm a general. I lead soldiers, not warriors. There's a difference, though not one that you'd understand. And just because I don't wish to fight doesn't mean that I will not. The human general began to walk to a small ridge as Satan's escorts prodded the demon along. But we really do want peace. The easiest way for that goal is for you to surrender before we have to destroy any more of your... Uh, men. You will never take this world, the king snarled. My subjects will not be ruled by the likes of you. I will not be ruled by filthy descendants of apes. This time, the expected impact did not come. Instead, the human general just laughed. <laughs> oh, you misunderstand. We don't want to rule you. Who would want to live in this stump anyway? He gestured to the desolate rocky terrain. I can see why you'd want to earth, but we've established that you can't have it. Nor do I think any of you would be welcome there if for quite some time. No, we just want you to stay away from our home. Ah, oh, we will never surrender. You cannot stop our fool, knight. In the distance, the demon spotted the rising dust of one of the armies moving towards the portal. Ha! Even now, my forces marshal to grind you into dust. They wash over your puny fighters like a tide of destruction. Your arms will be torn from their sockets and fed to my legions. Your eyes will be... This time the general nodded to the guard, who hammered the monster in the back of the head with a rifle butt. I thought you might say something like that, so uh, I brought along a little demonstration. Satan twisted around to see a large vehicle with a cylinder on top of it through the gate, deploying several legs for stabilization. Whatever was on the back begins to lift on vertical position. Normally, the Russians would never let us touch one of these, but they're fairly eager to get some of their own. My sources also say that they're not nearly so far on opening up their own portal, so they figured they'd play nice for now. The general pulled out a pair of dark glasses and put them on. The demonic lord noticed all of the humans in the area doing the same as many backed away from the strange trunk. The guard reached over and fastened a pair of goggles around his charger's head. And the snarl, the man shrugged and said, Trust me, you want these. Unable to detect any nefarious purpose in the pieces of tinted glass, the demon acquiesced. Last chance, Satan. I'd prefer not to have to give you a demonstration, but I need you to order that army to stand down. Or we'll stand them down for you. Satan's glare could have burned through steel. Shrugging, the general ordered the attack. Instantly, the cylinder shot into the sky towards the distant legion. It looked like the rockets fired by humans on their own planet to the demon, but somewhat bigger. It still wasn't anywhere near large enough to stop that many of the finest troops in his dimension. Oh. That thought was proven wrong as moments later on the horizon erupted in a blinding flash, 
Satan could only watch stunned as a mushroom cloud began to form over where the host had once stood. When the much-reduced shockwave hit, it nearly knocked the demon lord over. Now, the general said to the stunned monster, you've seen how truly outclassed you are. At a word, I can cover this whole world in clouds of atomic fire, so, he finished, are you going to surrender? What's left of your legions? Or are we going to have to really make this place into hell? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1528 A New Kind of War Written by Mr. Grinder It was a good day. The sun was shining, it was reasonably warm, and not even a single cloud was to be seen. It was a good day for battle. Aramal sat on his horse and looked at the green fields that were laying around them. The main part of his army was positioned between two hills, giving the flanks at least some protection. In front row were a few archers he had. Behind them stood the spearmen who had made up the largest part of his troops. In the last line was the heavy infantry. On the hills themselves was a light cavalry, positioned to stop any flanking attempt and alarm him of any incoming troops. Most of the men serving under his command were elvish peasants. A few real soldiers were amongst the light cavalry and heavy infantry, but no more than two hundred. A ridiculously weak and inexperienced army. If this would be a real war with an actual opponent on his opposing side, he wouldn't even dare to use such an army. He would use the standing royal army of his king, all battle-hardened veterans. But... He and his king both agreed that this as drastic step as mobilizing the army wasn't needed to deal with the current matter. No, after all, Aramal was just tasked with putting down a human rebellion. The humans had been a part of the High Kingdom for a long time. They lived in separate cities and villages, used different roads, and had to pay different taxes. All in all, the humans were closer to slaves than real citizens of the Elvish kingdom. And it's only natural that they would be. After all, they were just savages, not able to understand the culture and values of the elves. Normally, an elven army wouldn't even be sent to deal with a human insurrection. Another human slave army would just be mobilized to put down any rebellion. After all, an elf doesn't need to dirty his hands with any human matter. For such trivial things, we have other humans. But this time was different. It seemed like this time the humans had mobilized their whole race. Not even a single human lord wanted honor of putting down this insurrection. Instead, they swore fealty to a human king. What insolence! How can there be any king besides the High King of the Elves? Not even any another race, neither the dwarves nor the dark elves, dared to use the word king for their leaders. But the humans did. Their so-called king, Frederick, sent a messenger to the royal court announcing that the human kingdom was, from this day, an independent state. Of course, the messenger was instantly executed for his insubordination. But nonetheless... One of the court officials was appointed the task of putting the humans back in their place. He himself, the master of swords, Aramal, was chosen. 
and even though it was no task that promised glory, he was set on dealing with this matter as diligently as possible. Many scouts had informed him that the human army was just two hours away, he decided to challenge them to battle and had brought his troops information on a field of his liking. He was surprised at how fast the humans reacted to his challenge. He expected at least some kind of doubt by human commanders, but instead they seemed to be determined to go to battle. And so, soon the human army had taken formation in orderly lines on the other side of the plains. Aramal turned to his second-in-command. What do you think? His second-in-command was a local Elvish noble who had volunteered for the job. He was too young and lacked experience, but he had studied the art of war and possessed a sharp wit. I am not sure. They seem to have taken up a standard battle line. They are missing any archers, and the whole line seems to be made up of infantrymen. Well... They are savages. Yes, of course, sir. But even those lowly savages seem to possess at least some ability in the matters of warfare. They mainly adopted owl formations, even though they don't use archers as much as the royal army. They normally have at least a few set up to harass their opponents. His second-in-command had just confirmed his suspicion. Something was wrong. No one goes into battle without skirmishes. And even if they did, the human infantry was also odd. They seemed to wear no armor and carried no shields. They just had some strange wooden and iron stinks. And furthermore, he had definitely seen that there were horse-drawing strange iron tubes behind them. But they soon vanished behind a hill. While Aramal was pondering about what this meant and what his next steps would be, he was interrupted by the sound of thunder. It seems like a storm is closing in, said his second-in-command, looking up at the sky. But there aren't any clouds. Suddenly, the young elf was thrown from his horse. Dirt was thrown into the air and came raining down on Aramal. His horse started to panic and tried to run away. Aramal had to use all the riding skills he had to stay on its back and regain control. He looked around. First, eyes fell on a dead body of his second-in-command. His right arm was torn off and his face bathed in blood. His horse had fallen, burying the lower half of the young elf. Next, his sight fell onto his army. All over the line were holes in the formation. The lower ranks were in chaos. Only the heavy infantry remained some kind of disciplined. How is this possible? He rumbled. Catapults? No, there aren't any catapults that can shoot this far. Furthermore, they can't prepare them this fast. Just setting them up would take hours. Magic? No way. Humans don't possess magic, and even if they did, this would be a high-level spell. He never heard of such a strong magic. No matter what it was, if we were to stay, we would be destroyed. Retreat is no option. It would be looked down upon if I were to retreat in front of humans. Attack, it is. Sound the attack signal, he shouted. He was pleasantly surprised when he immediately heard the horn being blown. It seemed... Like at least some of his officers remained calm and preserved discipline. His troops began to advance towards the human line. Those that were hit by the attack were pushed forward by those who weren't, and slowly the gap between both armies started to close. He signaled his light cavalry to secure their flanks and sent out an order to the archers. They were tasked with falling back and shooting on the enemy from behind friendly troops. 
Again, he heard the thunder, and soon again there seemed to be impacts all over the field, when most of them missed the now-moving army and impacted behind them. He could also get a short glance at one of the objects that fell from the sky. It looked just like a simple metal ball. If this is all they have up their sleeves, we'll be sure to defeat them. Soon they cleared half of their way over the field. His army was now in much better shape than before. The humans had two more times thrown those metal balls at them, but with as close to no effect. Aramal drew his sword and made his horse go faster. He would personally disperse this rebel army and avenge the fallen elves. He would be at the front line. Nan! In the name of the High King, charge! He let out a battle cry at the top of his lungs. Soon, his troops picked up and began running towards the enemy. He joyfully noticed morale was at its height. But just a few meters later again, he could hear the sound of thunder. But it was different. It seemed smaller, but much more numerous. He didn't notice what it was until the first line of elves fell dead to the ground. The following men lost balance as they stumbled across the bodies of the dead comrades. Smoke was rising from the human army, making them nearly invisible. The battle cry of the elves had suddenly died down. It was dead silent. He could only hear the cries of the wounded men and faint orders from the human side. Again, the sound of thunder. The next line of soldiers fell. He felt how fear gripped his heart. Suddenly, he noticed that he was bleeding. Red blood was seeping out of his armor, flowing down his leg and dripping on the ground. He was distracted by the sound of hooves closing in. He looked at the direction it came from, hoping to see a light cavalry. But the only thing he saw of them were men and horses either lying dead on the ground or fleeing the battlefield. It was over, he knew. Darkness enclouded his vision, and the sounds of his men fleeing faded away. How is he? asked Oberst Heinrich, one wagon. He was standing inside a rather small tent, only offering enough place for the small bunk bed, and the doctor looking at the patient, or rather prisoner, lying on the bed. He is, uh, fine, said the doctor. Heinrich looked at her and raised one of his eyebrows. Fine, yes. You know, my task is to report to the general if he will survive or not. Fine is not really helping. The doctor took off her headscarf, revealing her long brown hair. Helvin physique is not entirely researched, and I don't know if we will survive. If he would be a human, he would have died of blood loss. But as he is an elf, I'm not sure. He might survive, or not. For now, he is fine. So I report to the general we'll have to wait and see. Exactly. I will now go and look at my human patients. She threw a quick look of disdain at the elf and quickly left the tent. Heinrich followed her. We have taken casualties, he asked in a tone of disbelief. Nothing as serious as that. Some cavalrymen have bruises from where they skirmished with the enemy cavalry. One artillery crewman dropped a cannonball on his foot. That's about it. Good day, Herr Erbust, she stopped turned, saluted, and quickly headed to the field hospital. Good day, Frau Stabs Watson, he shouted after her grinning. He turned to the two soldiers guarding the tent. Call me as soon as he wakes up. Sir, what about the doctor? asked one of the men. Her as well, of course. Then Heinrich turned around and headed to the tent of the general. 
His way led him through the human encampment. It didn't feel like they had just fought a battle. It felt more like training did back before the war. Most of the men were taking care of the weapons, cleaning their uniform, or talking with their friends. His own artillery regiment had gone out to analyze the landing patterns of the different shots they fired, to increase future accuracy. He also swore that he could see some men gambling and drinking, but he wouldn't stop them. Not today. Not on the day of victory. Everyone was happy and in a festive mood. There was no soldier crying because they lost a close friend or crippled people thinking about what they'll do now. The tent of the general was large, made of red fabric, and had a circular shape. Inside were the commanding officers of the army. In the middle of the tent was a large table with a map of Alvin High Kingdom. At the table stood General von Holmsdorf, an old man, but nonetheless tall with very muscular arms. His grey hair was cut short, and his whole pride, a large grey moustache, was groomed to perfection. His finger pointed at a map. The second and third army have advanced along the Bolton River and taken the city of Alfallen. The fourth army has taken Norunda and are en route to Dandarin. We will advance along this road and start besieging the capital. The second army will reinforce us there while the third army will disperse any hastily assembled army by the elves. If everything continues to go as well as it has, this war will be over in two months. The general looked up. Ah, Oberst von Bergen, your artillery regiment performed perfect during the battle. Thank you, your excellency. But our aim is quite off. We still have a lot to learn. Heinrich responded. You think too low of yourself, Oberst. After all this was the first time those cannons were tested under battle conditions. Under these circumstances, you perform perfectly. But certainly not only the artillery deserves praise. The cavalry was the major factor in finally breaking the enemy and dispersing the troops. Sure, sure. The cavalrymen performed also perfect. They looked at the commanding officer of the cavalry. She quickly saluted and said, Thank you, Your Excellency. Very well. This concludes everything for today. We'll stay here for another day to replenish our ammunition and head out the day after tomorrow. You are dismissed. The officers start making their way out of the tent. Oberst Heinrich, could you please wait for a moment? As soon as the last man left the tent, the general looked Heinrich deep in the eye. Jeez, why can't you just take a compliment? said the general. It'll only create problems if the different results get envious of each other or get a feeling that they are treated unfairly, Heinrich said. The general sighed. However, take a seat. He lets himself fall into a comfortable chair takes two glasses and a wine bottle out of a chest and pours some in each of them. Heinrich takes himself a chair, positions himself right next to the general, and takes one glass. So, Heinrich, how is our guest? Fine, Heinrich responded. Fine, yes, fine. Margaret says that he might survive. She is not quite sure. If our guest would be human, he would be dead, but, well, he obviously isn't. We can only wait and see. I see, so I'll guess I'll have to wait until I report back to the capital. The general sighed again and took a quick sip of wine. So, the war is going good. Yeah, it is. The general took another sip. They didn't expect that we would hit them this hard. But finally, all this work, building an army, creating new weapons and tactics from scratch, building up our economy, has come to fruition. Finally, 
We are able to spit these damn long ears in the face. Finally, we are able to claim our freedom. He raised his glass. For our freedom. Heinrich as well raised his glass. For our freedom. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1529. Story number one. How does that work? Written by three ducks in a mad suit. So, uh, what? How? Just explain this from the beginning. E each step. How does this work? I took a moment before answering to admire the translation equipment the ethereals used. It conveyed a sense of confusion and curiosity very efficiently, considering that their kind possessed no faces or audible voices at all. Well, uh, I knelt over the antennae eager to start explaining. First, the microphone captures the sounds that we want to transmit. That's this part right here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. So, uh, that captures the sounds and turns them into electrical energy. Then, uh, how do I explain this better? Right, right. Th then that electrical energy flows through the antenna, which boosts it, and that generates electromagnetic radiation in the form of radio waves. Uh, with me so far... I struggled to perceive any kind of reaction to my explanation. Was he getting it? He? She? Ethereals were gentlest, right? They don't even have physical forms. It just looked like a vaguely bluish splash of light drifting through the air, interspersed with diamond flashes, stars in a miniature galaxy. They were really quite beautiful. I decided on the spot that this one was female, and I'd call it a she. Why not? So, uh, anyways, any receiver within range of that signal can intercept it with their own antenna and convert it back into electrical current, which can then be translated back into sound. And in this way, we can communicate over vast distances. I stood back up, hoping the translation software was picking up the beaming smile on my face and conveying accurately what I was saying. Humanity has used this technology for centuries now. We have it down to a very fine science, and it's quite reliable. So, um, what do you think? It had surprised me to learn that these serials had never heard of anything even close to the concept of radio. But I was happy to explain. Mr. Tracy, ha, huh. her voice was vaguely feminine. I made the right choice. That's, uh, completely insane. The smile froze on my face. Huh? The sparkling lights within the ethereal swirling body jumped and danced. The translator picked up on it and gave her a voice of prickly edge. That's not how the universe works at all. I blinked, words escaping me. Um, well, uh, I mean, it works like, uh, we've been using this since, uh, Jesus, since the 19th century, I guess. I know that that must seem like a blink of an eye to a race as old as yours, but that's practically the dawn of this technology age for, uh, Mr. Tracy, there is nothing about this, uh, radio that should work at all. Compression waves do not work that way. Electricity does not work that way. Electromagnetic radiation does not work that way. I cleared my throat. What exactly was going on here? I thought that the Imperial Ambassador was just interested in learning about Earth's history, but... I suspected this when you told me about how your combustion engines in the old worked. The Ambassador had calmed down somewhat, but there was a distinct tired edge in the translated voice now. Mr. Tracy, this, uh... Radio does not work on electromagnetic waves at all. It's a psychic transmitter. S-psy, uh, that's simply not possible. I shook my head. 
Humans aren't psychic at all, I'm afraid. We have no history of it at all. Aside from the occasional crackpot who manages to convince a gullible that they can see the future, or bend spoons, or other similar tomfoolery. I chuckled, my laughter only pertering out as lamely when I realized that I was the only one finding anything funny. Mr. Tracy. The ethereal seemed to condense somewhat from her twelve-foot-high, indistinct form into something more solid and humanly proportioned. We detected a massive psychic field surrounding your race the moment we found you. It saturates your homeworld so heavily that most psychic species cannot even set foot on Earth without their minds melting from the strain of so much ambient energy. Your technology works. I held my breath, unsure what to think. Because you all think it should work. Radios, cars, computers, I mean really, did none of you stop to think for a moment how ridiculous the idea of getting into space by riding an explosion was? I struggled for a response, but found myself stuttering. But, 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 I, I, we, um, I was an engineer of almost twenty years. This was nonsense. It was all science, right? One plus one equals two. Right? Did you not wonder why your advancement in technological progress mirrors your growth in population so closely? The more humans there are to believe in something, to contribute their own individual power to the gestalt psychic field you have, the more your species has been able to bend and even break the fundamental laws of nature. Did you really think that you had managed to split the atom by using an <laughs> explosion? Does that not sound completely insane, even to your ears? Well, when you put it like that, I shuffled my feet trying to ignore the way my entire worldview and education was being torn apart. And then there was a war of two halves. My head jerked up, the excuses and justifications already in my throat. We didn't start that war. After we won, they spent the next four years spinning their propaganda machine to make us out as the aggressors. You really should have had no chance there. A species barely into space age fighting a centuries-old established empire. Ludicrous! Guns that should not have worked, damaging creatures that should have been immune to such kinetic weaponry in an environment where you should not have been able to stand in, let alone breathe. But you did so anyway, because for some reason you think it was completely normal just to take a piece of your home atmosphere with you to other planets and breathe that. Honestly. It was still difficult to decipher the exact emotions Ethereal spelt. But I was learning fast. Just, uh... Please not try to get into many more fights, okay? I nodded, feeling kind of dumb. How the heck am I going to explain the internet? End of story. Story number two. Humans and their pets. Written by Armored Cadian. No one is sure when it became universally accepted that humans are in charge of the galaxy. It just kind of happened. The when may not be clear, but the why is absolutely clear. It probably started back when the first contact between humans and the wider galaxy happened. At the time, while there was a council, it was fairly ineffective, with humans later commenting that it was about as effective as the United Nations. No human has ever elaborated on just what that comment means, though. Power was roughly split between the Kragnos and the Arachians. These two races were the only known sapient predator species on the galactic scale at the time. More had been discovered since then, 
but at the time, the Kragnos and the Arachians essentially had the run of the galaxy because most of the other species were prey species and terrified of them. The only thing that stopped the council from being effective is that the two dominant species didn't get along at all. Then came the humans. At first, their introduction to the other races was very formal and serious, but that changed when the human ambassador was required to move to the station that housed galactic politics, and he brought his family along, including pets. The significance of this move is that the human ambassador had two younger children as well as animals that humans refer to as a cat and a dog. But to the wider galactic community, the dog was not quite a sapient version of the crackness, and the cat was the same but for the Iraqians. While the human ambassador had initially kept our animals concealed from public view, over the concerns that it would spark an outcry from the ambassadors of the two major powers, his children didn't quite understand this, and accidentally let the animals loose. Now, no one is quite sure of the exact details behind the next step of the process. After the ambassador's children had went out searching for the missing pets, they came back having seemed to tame members of these two species. News spread within two races, and there was a sudden demand from members of both of the Kragnos and the Iraqians for integration into human households. And so, the humans eventually ended up with both races becoming essentially vassal states to them, and it wasn't even the human race's idea. The only race to oppose this move was also the only race who wasn't in fear of the predators mostly due to having more fear of the herbivores and the omnivore humans. The carnivore, Kragnos, and the Iraqians, that race was a sentient plant known as the followers of the sun. Although the humans dubbed them the Ents, that name stuck. The Ents were concerned that the humans, having pacified the Kragnos and the Akrakians, were removing the only protection the Ents had against the rest of the galaxy. The humans reacted by taking the ends into their homes as well, and the complaint ceased. The cycle would continue to repeat many times. Fast forward a few hundred years to the present, then you have a human race in charge of the entire galaxy, mostly because every other race has voluntarily become integrated into human family units, in a role similar to how pets were in the past. The humans, when asked about it, will usually shrug and with a look of amusement and say, Well, I just couldn't say no to that cute face. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1530. Story number one. Great Big Murderbots from Earth. Written by Chaparthing. I just don't get it, muttered Zendo through the binoculars. I I I get the how, but I I don't understand is the why. Another impact sent dirt and a few heavily armored corpses flying. Can we not have this debate right now? I screamed over the mic as one hundred foot colossus of hardened steel and gun barrels stomped terrifyingly close to our foxhole. Uh, look at it, screamed Zendo. That thing must have taken out an enormous amount of scientific and industrial resources to create. The time invested could easily produce thousands of sets of powered armor. It's so inefficient, it makes me want to pull my antenna out. And yet it's kicking our rear, so could we please... Bogus fire on the giant metal death thingy. I popped out of the foxhole and took a few pot shots at the exposed ankle joint of the Colossus with my heavy fusion rifle. Zendo continued to rant. And 
So many weak spots, he said, as he loaded another plasma warhead into his launcher. A traditional armored vehicle of that size would be vulnerable, sure, but it wouldn't have nearly the same number of points of failure. I loaded another hydrogen cell into my rifle. Speaking of weak spots, could you please shoot at them? I'd hate to interrupt your lecture, but I'd rather not die with you being the last person I talk to. I just find it odd is all, said Zender. Can you find it odd and shoot at the same time, please? I shouted. Zender rolled his eyes as he shouldered the rocket launch and fired the magnetically charged warhead at the ankle of the giant construct. The plasma melted anything not made of hardened steel, and the joint seized up, giving us a moment of reprieve. Just think about it, he continued. We experimented with them in the early 2420s, sure, but even we knew that they were more trouble than they were worth. He was cut off as the destroyer-sized gun mounted in one of the titan's hands erupted in a wall of orange light. While my retinas were repaired by nanobots, I heard the distinctive sound of a building providing us with covering fire being reduced into slag. You know, now that you mention it, it is a little bit of overkill, I said despite all attempts to break the conversation with Sendo. Do you think it's pride? Asked Sendo, who was fumbling with the muddy foxhole for another plasma warhead. I felt it against my admin and tossed it towards him. I could hear it clank against his exterior armor. Pride? I asked curiously. Zendo scoffed. It has to be pride. It must be pride, he said confidently. What makes you say that? I asked. A hail of rockets surged forth from the mech's shoulders. Moments later, the distinctive shriek of their missile sirens filled our heads as they flew overhead to destroy what I assumed was something of ours that was either devastatingly expensive, crucial for our survival, or both. My sight was coming back, and I could see very clearly, easily twenty pounds of grey goo microbots repairing the damage that we'd done to the ankle joint. Zendo fired another rocket at the other ankle joint to buy us more time. Think about it. Primitive species who barely crossed the equilibrium threshold for their robotics. Oh god, don't remind me of that war. Who thought that it was a good idea to hook up an AI directly to superweapons? I said. Without bothering to raise my head above the foxhole, I emptied my fusion rifle to the surrounding landscape, confident that I'd hit at least one human. I know, right? said Zendo, and was looking for the last warhead which was tucked between his legs. I'll protect my life by destroying it and preserving DNA so that it technically I'm not killing you. Who programmed that AI? Anyways, off topic. So here we have a species that, uh, let's face it, isn't as technologically as advanced as us. I laughed. Hasn't stopped them from kicking our ears, I said. On cue, the comms broke into panic as the mech raised its arms and sprayed everything fifty feet rear of us in burning hot plasma. They do have an underdog complex to them, don't they? said Zander as he tossed a grenade over the lip of the foxhole. As I was saying, they know that we have tech advantage. So what do they do? I nodded. Build a great fuck-off robot with enough guns and armor on it to make every engineer, general, and tech acolyte develop a great throbbing murder erection. I finished. And yet somehow, it, it works, said Zendo. I wonder why. At this moment, our comms was interrupted by another voice. Because stupid Xenos get confused and start a lecture in a foxhole, the voice said. Zendo and I looked up to see several thousand armor-clad human soldiers with a gun a third the size of him and pointing a barrel in towards us. 
I laughed and surrendered, because if a species can win with something as inefficient as that, they deserve it. End of story. Story number two. Impossible to Occupy, written by Incredibilis Ha. There's quite an interesting theme throughout humanity's history. As soon as a national identity was created, nations became harder and harder to occupy. Nationalism in itself is quite an alien concept to us Decanians. Pride of one's tribe, one's family, we understand. It is in our mutual interest to care about others so that we might accomplish greater things together. But pride, not of yourself, your tribe, your building, your species, or your family, but of a government and land it is settled upon, that surprises us. Most species, when they achieve spaceflight, are unified. Nationalism, tribalism, and hubris exist only in the beginning stages of any given species' development. So when humans discovered FTL travel, not due to an urge to explore, not due to the need for more land, and not due to an urge to conquer, but due to interspecies rivalries, we were surprised. The humans were fractured, broken, and split into dozens of pieces. Easy pickings. Or, at least, that is what us Decanians thought. We were a race of warriors, conquerors, and strategists. Courage and honor are our greatest virtues. We attempted to conquer one of their fractured nations. The other human nations cheered us on. They seemed almost happy. The human nation was a pushover. Between our superior training, technology, and physical strength, they collapsed within three months. Yet, this is where a major problem started. See, we may have won in the conventional war, but we didn't win the war of the hearts and minds of the humans we conquered. Humans didn't see war for what it was, the obtaining of an object, but rather they saw a second stage in every war, the holding onto that object. The object, in this case, were the 15 planets we conquered, and we didn't realize the stage existed before it was too late. Nationalism is a double-edged blade. We merely thought of it as radical hatred, unjustified genocide, and the need to feel superior. But it can also manifest itself as something which motivates people to fight for the things that they hold dear. It motivates them to fight for their families, their values, and their people. When one looks back into humanity's history, we should have seen this coming. How many times has this not happened? There's a reason humanity isn't unified. It's not because they aren't social enough or lack the technology for it. It is because of the pride of each one of them holds for their people. This feeling of pride has motivated acts of incredible barbarism and cruelty. But... It can also motivate one to stand and fight. Hubris is mankind's blight, but they shall also make it our blight. The first stages of occupation were turbulent, but that was to be expected. But the flame of resistance didn't die out. Years after the war had officially ended, human fighters were still fighting, ambushing, raiding and ravaging our cities and patrols. Most of the planets we conquered still looked like war zones. We gained nothing. The humans also gained nothing. But they made us bleed. And that was enough for them. Humanity 
is dangerous. Not because they are exceptionally smart, strong, or cunning, but because they simply won't stop. Now three decades after the invasion, we are forced to abandon the planets we conquered. Thousands sent to the grave in vain. I hope no one else will try and attempt to invade them. They will succeed. They'll just not hold on. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1531. Story number one. Winning the Ground War. Written by fools like me. Ever since the Saxix army lost orbital dominance two cycles ago, they've been on the move. Sergeant Louvet rolled out the bed along with every other soldier in his barracks when the wake-up call sounded. He quickly dressed and began hiking up the mobile radar station on a nearby hill. The rest of the soldiers around him suited up and started packing up camp. Saxic are an insectoid race, keep on acquiring new resource-rich worlds, even if they were already occupied. The last offensive may have been placed in them beyond reinforcements, but they didn't mean that they couldn't hold their own. Orbital control wasn't crucial anyway. They were still winning the Grand War. Extremely mobile terrestrial vehicles and galaxy-renowned camouflage saw to that. Orbital strikes were fast, but they couldn't change the course, and you can't shoot what you can't see anyway. After a night of radio silence and being hidden under a canopy of a forest, it was time to contact the other regiments. When Louvet reached the radar station, he double-checked the timetables for today's information exchange. Everything was right on schedule. Today would be an early morning rendezvous, though he couldn't see it. He knew that his fellow soldiers had packed up camp and were waiting on their vehicles in the valley below, with their eyes to the sky. The Saxic mobile forces could avoid the blast radius of a kinetic orbital strike with as little as three minutes' notice. After a brief systems check, the mobile radar was prepped to go. He picked up a two-way radio and said, Commander, are you mobile ready? Ready, came the crisp reply. Louvet fired up the antenna and initiated a signal sweep. Sir, a new radio signature just came online. How far away is it? Five minutes. Daily communication with other mobile ground forces is crucial to coordinating offensive efforts. However, using the radio exposes your location briefly until you can find friendly troops to switch to a directional antennae. One that wouldn't leak signals into space. The control board chimed, indicating a signal had been found. Louvain keyed into the mic. Good morning, this is BDFA-773 reporting in. Coming! I can't! It's moving so fast! Louvain paused as the static on the radio hissed. It wasn't uncommon to join in the middle of another conversation. But the interference was unusual. All the status indicators looked good from his end. So, it must be coming from the other radio site. He pressed the mic button again. I'm having trouble hearing you. Say again. Hostile. Prepare for... The static seemed to grow even louder, drowning out more of the world's... Object appears to be... He caught himself, holding his breath. What was that sound? Hostile. Dead. Pete. Nuclear. Miss. He jumped to his feet, compound eyes scanning in the direction of the antenna was facing, searching the horizon for the glowing mushroom cloud. Oh, gods, it's... Louvet waited. The radio continued to hiss. One minute. Two. He switched off the antenna, 
His growing shock at the possible loss of another regiment was interrupted by his commander. What's the status? His commander said. Normally Louvain would have given him a sit-rep by now. We must have gotten impatient. We've got a problem, sir. I think our friendlies got nuked. They're not responding. They got what? Louvain's eyes were still scanning out the window. Nuked, sir. I think we better... There was something on the horizon. It was coming in low, opposite the rising sun. The object was dark, but there was some light behind it. Could it be a missile? Now that it's dropped, its last warhead can cruise around at low altitudes, destroying enemy regiments with acoustic shockwaves. Uncontrollably, no, we'll be directing it. The object was growing larger by the second. Either it was already on top of them, or it was moving impossibly fast. Incoming hostile, we need to go now, Louvet shouted into the radio. All units evacuate! Meet in Delta, go! The commander relayed. All through the valley, Sergeant Louvet could hear engines spooling up. He slammed a hand down on the start button and fired his own vehicle up. Quickly, he cast a glance up to check the location of the missile. With luck, the ground forces could be well on the way before. It was already here. If Louvet hadn't looked up at the precise moment, he would have missed it. The large fuselage of the missile streaked across the sky, completely silent. It was flying so low that it could have crashed into the roof of a small skyscraper. And before he could blink, it was gone. It dropped no bombs and continued on its way. Confused, Louvet turned to look back where it came from and gasped. Rushing towards him was a veritable wall of death. A shockwave that was ripping through the land, tossing trees and vegetation aside with vengeance. He pulled the controls hard to get out of the way. All at once, the sound crashed over him and rendered his vehicle and the valley below. Several alien war officials and aides were standing around a control center in stunned silence. The Alliance had asked humanity for help to end this war. But this... And uh, how is this thing powered again? One of them asked. The human military general smiled. Fusion is a fusion-powered scramjet. But how do you convert the electricity to thrust? We don't. We simply expose the fusion core to the atmosphere inside the scramjet's combustion chamber. At high speeds, the air combusts and provides thrust. The old alien general muttered, Never seen anything that large fly that fast in the atmosphere. The human continued. It flies around in Mach 10 or so. He glanced at his aide. Did that translate? She nodded. It has enough fuel to fly for a few weeks, but uh, we can ditch it early if necessary. At this rate, we'll run through the remaining enemy forces in the next couple of days. Uh, how many more of these does uh, humanity have? The general smiled. <laughs> I'm afraid that's classified. End of story. Story number two. The Crazy Iron Stomachs of the Human Race Written by Louis Le Diamond You know what I love doing? Trying various cuisines and foods from various races around the galaxy. From the Gorathon of Alepanthia to the Articulatiums of the Horantitatataud, the galaxy has its fair share of delicious dishes. But none are quite as delicious or potentially deadly as the various dishes from Earth. For example, a popular drink among humans is coffee. It's a brown bitter liquid with caffeine as a key ingredient. That's right. One of the most deadly poisons in the galaxy is something humans consume a lot. 
bits, and a hefty amount of their drinks besides coffee too. For them, the effects of caffeine vary. For neurotypical humans, caffeine acts as a stimulant like a booster for their brains. Similar, in fact, to the oh-so-infamous adrenaline. For humans with a neurodivergency known as ADHD, however, it helps calm them down and control their energy levels. Humans also consume plenty of capsaicin. You know, the stuff that literally sets some people on fire. Yeah, that stuff. Humans throw it in some of their foods for, uh, fun. It has no health benefit. They just, uh, like the pain of it. Seriously. Humans are a weird bunch. But they also have plenty of various delicious food that are safe for all the races to eat. One of my favorite is that I'm eating as a type of this is a dish popular in North America on Earth known as cornbread. Bread is humanity's foundation food, that food type that helped kickstart civilization with its energy-dense makeup. Cornbread is a variation of it with cornmeal, a product made from vegetable known as corn, or sometimes maize as a key ingredient. Yet alongside many breads, such as banana bread and garlic bread, which is also unfortunately toxic towards most life, are extremely popular. That bread itself is present in almost every human meal. Humans also enjoy a variety of drinks, such as tea and coffee. Both are extremely popular, but due to caffeine present in most teas and coffee, are potentially lethal for most sentients. Along with soft drinks like soda, also referred to as popped, has hard drinks like beer, whiskey, and wine. The hard in hard drinks refers to the drink containing another highly toxic chemical, known as alcohol. Humans get high off of the substance and can die if too much is consumed. This chemical impairs their judgment and their mental and physical facilities. That's right. They actively ingest chemicals that put them in harm's way. Human dishes also include many non-toxic foods too, however. Rice, the most popular food, along with vegetables such as carrots, corn, and potatoes, are extremely healthy for most sentients. Same with the uh, fruits, a unique food group to Earth, that are jam-packed with the oh-so-precious natural sugars. In fact, Earth is the number one supplier of galactic natural sugars, hence the sweet boom when they were introduced to the galaxy. After the Second human Kanalanti War, these fruits and vegetables have become mainstays of human diets, and are grown on all planets suitable and owned by humanity. Or its select allies, like the Potitharians, who were suffering a mass famine before Earth gifted many of its crops to the planet. Needless to say, Earthling cuisines have seriously reshaped the diets of many citizens of the galaxy. But Earth's food will can always be a gamble of delicious delicacies or poisonous last meals. This has been your favorite food blogger and chef extraordinaire, Garthak, wishing you a bon appetit. And, as always, goodbye and uh, good night. End of story. Tales from Our Space 1532. Story number one. The New Knights of the Round Table. Written by Alex Sylvain. It had been three solar years since I pulled the sword from the stone. A lot had happened since. With Mr. Lin's help, we spread our message to planet after planet. I campaigned and struggled. I became famous throughout the entire Kepler system. But I'm only too aware that my work has not yet even begun. 
The real work begins now. People believe in my ideals. They've elected me to high office. Now I need to see if they're willing to fight for my ideals as well. I gaze around the room. Six others sit at my table. Mr. Lin stands behind me, whispering advice and suggestions. He's the only one I completely trust. The others are, uh, more complicated. The first is Sir Illicon, an Azathonian, as a head of the Department for Alien Species. He's probably the second most trustworthy one here. He knows that my campaign for complete equality between sentient creatures, magical, non-magical, alien, human, whatever, can only help him in the long run. Humanity may be the dominant species, but it doesn't have to be forever. Next is Sir Alfred Dean, representing the re-emerging fairy kingdom. She is the most potential to be powerful ally, but currently, being that most of the universe doesn't believe she exists, she's mostly just a 4.4 child with attitude problems and wings, uh, shiny ones, sir. Edicon has already taken to calling her Alfie, which uh, she hates. Next is Father Petro DeVoe, the leader of the Neo-Trinity faith within the Kepler system. A handsome, well-groomed man, the only one to turn down a knighthood. The fact that he has come here at all means that he is interested in what I have to say. No doubt, he has his own ambitions. I'll have to keep them in check. My ambitions come first. Next is Sir Isaac Lazarus, a white-haired and steely-eyed. He's the leader of the Scientists Guild. He originally had no plans to join my alliance. But when I proved to him that Excalibur had rendered me unbreakable, he joined my side in a hurry. Outside of Merlin, he's probably the oldest one here. He has new bodies grown in medivacs. We use them for regrowing limbs every year. And transfers his consciousness to them. The rumor is that he's actually a living bolt of electricity that is transferable between bodies. He wants immortality more than anything. And feels that I am the path to it. Maybe. After him is Sir Lexicon, representing the growing android coalition. He is a Model 16B, widely regarded as the first android that we've breakthrough with the Uncanny Valley. He used to be an informational droid, but achieved sentience 46 souls ago. He believes the singularity is swiftly approaching, and all non-biological beings will need representation in the world. But the growing amount of sentient cases in the world I'm inclined to believe him. Probably the most important one here to win over to my cause is Sir Gwen Nevere, a tall, beautiful, dark-skinned woman. Her words command military forces on a hundred planets. Behind her back, she is called Helen of Troy because she has the power to launch a thousand starships. More like a hundred thousand. If she doesn't come to my side, my words and my sword might as well be as well as non-existent. I clear my throat. Thirteen eyes and one visual interface stare at me. I, I want to thank you all for electing me as your prime. Sir Illicon raises a tentacle. I feel I must admit that I actually voted for Zaragrelax. If that isn't a problem, I apologize. I raised an eyebrow. Not a problem at all, Sir Illicon. It's important that we stand on our deals. I realize some of you had candidates that you would rather have sitting in the seat. But I am glad that you all came here today. What happens here could change the entire universe. I'm gaining their interest, well, except for Alfie. 
She's sulking because Illicon convinced Lexicon to start calling her Alfie as well. Time to get to the point. There's a storm coming, a magical world hidden for so long in the dark place and the in-between is coming back out into the light. So Elf Dane here is proof of that. Alfie stops sulking and turns to look at me, wings quivering. She knows that this is important. Humanity has never been good at accepting new things. Transition has always required chaos. And believe me, friends, chaos is coming. The Age of Understanding is at an end. The Galactic Coalition and the Bico Alliance are at each other's throats. The Gravian Empire is in full revolt. Magic will be matched that will light the tinderbox that is this universe. I have everyone's full attention now. My hands are shivering. But there are some things Mr. Lin simply can't help me with. I press forward. I was elected because the people agreed with me. They see what is coming. They've heard the stories about the fate, the soothsayers, the random spread of magic throughout the world. They need a guiding hand. We need a new moral code. Combine it with an old one, the neo-chivalry movement. We will spread it throughout the world. All worlds. We will seize this moment of uncertainty to bring a new age to an entire world. Some people refuse to follow a man who is just elected prime in some minor backwater world. We obviously cannot go back to monarchy in a world that barely remembers what it is. Excalibur may have won Mr. Lenova, but I doubt that it would convince too many others. So I swear, when our conquest is over, when the storm clouds are gone, I will step down and let someone else take the reins of what I've accomplished. If the public feels that the person is someone other than me, so be it. But now, this world needs a leader. Someone to lead them out of the chaos and into peace. I will be that someone. I will stand in front of the storm and part it with my sword. Who's with me? Sir Gwen is the first to respond. She stands up, draws herself up to her full, intimidating height, and nods. I will follow you, Prime Artorius. I will follow you to the ends of the world. Her eyes are sparkling. She has always wanted to seize the world. I am the only vehicle. She's like a domino. With her on my side, the others don't take long. Sir Lazarus shakes my hand. Father Petro bows to me, a motion of subservience, and Sir Illicon and Sir Lexicon shout their assent. Alfie excitedly buzzes around the room. Then... I bring to a close the first meeting of the new Knights of the Round Table. The room cheers in assent. Mr. Lin smiles. Just so you know, a sweet voice whispers in my ear. They call it Round Table Discussion because everyone is supposed to have an equal say in it. I turn to the final person in the room, my other advisor. Morgan. She was the first to grasp the concept of magic from Mr. Lin. She took it like a Nerriman to a dream bath. Something. About it made Mr. Lin nervous. Something he can't remember. I remember. Some things bleed through from my old life. Mistakes, I made. I know I'll make many more mistakes along my journey. But I don't want to make the same ones. Morgan is my modern advisor to counteract Mr. Lin's ancient advice. She whispers the things Mr. Lin doesn't want to tell me. I accept her words with a smile. Thanks, sis. I'm going to keep her close this time. I am not going to let her betray us. I love her too much for that.
End of story. Story number two. Jonathan and Martha. Written by British Tea Company. For a few billion years, I always thought humanity was just a mote of dust in the infinite universe. Since the last ten years, I've come to realize that mote of dust might be more important to me than anything else in the universe. You probably couldn't comprehend what I am in my true form. My jaws could swallow your whole world if I wished. My hands could extinguish your star and leave you in eternal darkness. I could will your world in and out of reality, and you wouldn't notice a thing. That is not important, however. What is important is what my daughter thinks. We left her on Earth after our falling out. Contrary to what you believe, creatures like us still manage to be quarrelsome, even in martial affairs that have lasted longer than your solar system. It got so bad in my case that we ended up agreeing to leave our baby on Earth rather than take a returns on raising her child. Yes, we can be petty too. It's one of your failings as much as it's one of ours. That one thing that was shown to me, and it made me feel not so big for the first time. Our baby landed on Earth. A couple found her and raised her as their own. Watched from afar, observing as our child slowly realized the differences between her and her mortal companions. In a way, I was always envious of how two mortals got to share the experience with my daughter. I didn't personally get to congratulate her on flying to the moon and back. I didn't get to listen in with her to the song of the stars. And I never got to sit by her side and point out all the stars in the celestial sphere to her. She had to leave eventually, right? Decades for you are mere swipes of a pendulum for something as eternal as I am. I watched as she grew curious to her origins, and eventually the day came when she sought me out. We met right outside your solar system. I offered her the universe, told her of the distinct galaxies that we'll see together, and the stars and constellations that we could sculpt together as father and daughter. And to my shock, she didn't want it. She only wanted to meet me to know what she really was. When she had her answers, she turned around and went straight back to Earth. She lives amongst them still. When the humans continue to drive themselves to folly, she steps in and sets it right. When a force of nature comes to remind humanity of how small they truly are, she steps in and makes sure it never strikes. When that's all said and done, she returns home to her parents to enjoy the time they have left and maybe occasionally she'll come to me and ask if I wish to visit. When I see how happy she is living amongst them, the offer truly becomes tempting. As the days go by, this offers to experience humanity, both the race and the feeling become more and more enticing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1533. Story number one. Humans are most definitely weird. Safety problems. Captain Gorkastafgorkalpsht, the 14th, suddenly woke up to a multitude of blaring alarm sirens. As he suddenly sat up, he managed to slam his delicate sensor cluster into the bed above him. It hurt as hell, and caused him to produce an intense scream of vivid cursing. While he hurried to get dressed, he muttered to himself, Hey, can't we have some nice ruby quarters like the Gak? No, we gotta do it as we always have. Spartan and cramped sleep modules with crappy food cubes 
fucking sucks to be a clone. Suddenly, he felt the entire ship tremble, and yet another klaxon started to torment his auditory stalks. He rushed to the bridge and demanded a status report. Multiple, uh, system fa- attack help bridge, said one of the technicians. What? Turn off those damn klaxons, shouted the captain. The technician tapped away furiously on his keypad, and one by one the warning sirens quieted down. But just a couple of seconds after the last siren had been silenced, the ship started to vibrate again, causing a couple of sirens to start their noise once more. What the hell is going on? screamed the captain angrily. We don't know. Suddenly the entire ship started shaking and vibrating. Then multiple alarms went off, replied the tech. Oh yeah, I hadn't noticed. Uh, how about telling me what the sensors say? Uh, sorry, sir. Let's see, uh... There's a warning about a general system failure. The message might be a result of the multiple other warnings. Um, the attack alarm went off too, uh, triggered by the vibrations. And uh, same with the hull breach alarm. Uh, there is no pressure drops anywhere. But must must be a vibrations that calls the alarm too. Oh, what? There's some sensor readings from the guest quarters too. <sighs> you mean Cargo Bay 4? Where the big fucking human is? Yes, exactly. The sensors say that there's been a cargo displacement. Um, we don't have any other cargo there except for the human here. Oh, God damn it! Excuse me, sir. We were actually warned about this. Humans have all kinds of weird quirks that no other species have. Perhaps this is one of them? I can't see how that'd be possible, sir. These sensor readings indicate serious problems. There should be no way for any being to cause this kind of sensor data on his own. Mm-hmm. We'll see about that. Follow me, you two. Bring a couple of stunners just in case. The captain gestured to another crew member to join them and went off in the direction of Cargo Bay 4. Halfway there, the rumble began again, even stronger than before. And another siren, of course, went off. The captain glared, or a multi-stalked equivalent thereof, at the poor technician who just shrugged and brought up his porter pad. I thought you disabled those. I did, sir. This is a new warning. What is it this time? Um... There seem to be some problems with the life support in Cargo Bay 4. Disturbances in the airflow. What the hell is going on in there? muttered the captain to himself. When they arrived at the cargo bay in question, the unsettling sounds and vibrations had stopped again. The captain and the other crew member, the poor bastard without a name, brought up their stunners, and then the captain nodded to equally nameless technician to disable the safety lock on the personal door. The captain opened the door carefully, then as silently as possible, and peeked inside. It was mostly dark, with a few weak utility lights here and there. He asked the technician to slowly increase the main illumination to 15%. The captain could see the human seemingly sleeping in the corner with his custom-made bed. He was huge, almost twice as large as the captain. The captain wasn't fooled. He knew there was something fecky going on. Such a stunner, to Max. I'm not sure if these have any effects at all on this behemoth. Yes, sir, whispered the no-name guy. Okay, let's go. The techie stared at the door, unarmed as he was. He also thought to himself that it might be a good idea to be prepared to close the door and enable security measures if things went south, to protect the rest of the ship. There may have been some personal reasons, too. The captain and the no-name guy slowly walked towards the resting human, the soft pads of their feet making their movements virtually undetectable for small prey on their homeworld as well as for large humans 
and cargo bays. Evolution, feck yeah. When they were about ten bokka away from the human, the captain stopped and raised his stunner, accompanied by his crewmen. But just as he was about to yell at the human to show himself and put his hands in the air, the human moved. Suddenly, the awful vibrations began again, louder and nastier than ever. The captain was now convinced that this was an attack or possibly a defense mechanism of some sort, and yelled, SHOOT! They both hit the human with several shots each. When the first three shots hit, the human screamed and moved in a jerky fashion, as most people do when being shot with a stunner. He then attempted to get out of bed, but he should have been unconscious by now. How was this possible? Shoot! yelled the captain, and so they both began bombarding the dangerous human with stun pulse after stun pulse. After several shots from each attacker, the human succumbed and fell back onto his bed. They kept firing. They didn't stop until several minutes later when the power calls were depleted. Then the human moved again. Moments later, the sounds and vibrations returned, just as strong as before. That was the final straw, and they decided to flee for their lives. As soon as they had tumbled out through the door, the technician locked it and enabled the force fields. Five bokka later, the captain had spent 2,000 becca on an emergency FTL call to a human homeworld to ask for advice. The human on the other end of the line laughed when the captain explained the problem. Why are you laughing? said the captain. We have a serious security problem. <laughs> no, he's just snoring. Wake him up gently and tell him about the problem. He's probably just forgotten to use his snore inhibitor. Uh, um, snoring? Oh, yes, sir. You can read all about it on the net. Just wake him up first and fix your emergency. Then you can learn all about it later. Will do. Uh, thank you. Damn, you humans are, are weird. Can't argue with you on that one. End of story. Story number two. Carrying Capacity, written by Fisser946. We learn in environmental studies that there are natural blocks to prevent population overgrowth. Things such as predation, susceptibility to disease in high-density populations, and tendency to starve due to overgrowing their food sources' ability. To provide. When an animal is killed and eaten by another, others of its kind are left to continue the gene pool, hopefully with differences that make them less available to their predators. They run, they hide, we killed, we slew our predators with fear, then for sport. We locked them in cages for our amusement and their own safety from us. We bred them into mere shadows of their former selves, mockeries of what they once were. Neither does man bow willingly to sickness. For thousands of years, we were killed in swaths by disease. Our ancestors died in anguish, and we left rot in open graves. We refused to allow our fellow man to suffer at the hands of the unknown. So we took it upon ourselves that they suffer at our own hand. We dissected and vivisected our own kith and kin, performed abominable experiments on our fellow man, all in order to understand ourselves better. We brewed medicine and vaccines. We developed methods to prevent the spread of and, ultimately, exterminate those that plagued us so. Though our microscopic adversaries are innumerable and forever twisting and changing to kill us, we remain vigilant, eager to defend against the unseen menace. Food 
has always been a problem, but never before has it been more solvable. Even as billions go to sleep hungry and millions perish with empty stomachs, we continue to develop methods to feed our growing population. We tore into the flesh of Gaia and felled forests that stood for time immemorial to grow food for our families. We reduced farming and ecological balance to formulas with which to describe our place in the world and used those formulas to change the world around us and broaden our own place in the sun. We reached into the very blueprints of life and contorted it to grow things that suit our needs. In a short while, we may eliminate world hunger together. In environmental sciences, we learn that all populations experience a boom and bust cycle, growth and decay, always ending in decay. We learn that populations are controlled through predation, pestilence and hunger. Humans, however, are not content to be controlled. We refuse to bow to the laws of nature. We fear death, and in doing so we rise to conquer it. We may never be eternal, but in our struggle to overcome the barriers that dictate whether we live or die, I believe that we become something more than mortal, an abomination in the eyes of Mother Nature, free from the shackles she imposed on us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1534 Story number one The City Must Survive Written by British Tea Company Minus 90 degrees The storm came at the break of dawn Driven by howling tempests and shrieking gales Descending upon the city The normally dim day became black as night As Mother Nature vented her wrath upon New London Roofs creaked, windows rattled, mothers held their children close by, as prayers were uttered from pursed lips. Standing tall at the center of mankind's last bastion, the generator stood tall, billowing a defiant trail of smoke into the heavens. Its waves of heat blanketed the city, keeping it safe from the icy hell that had now befallen the entire frostland. The cold had claimed the rest of the world, but not New London. Not today. Has everyone been issued their allotment of food and timber? The captain asked anxiously as he saw the last of the city watch returning to their homes, standing at the generator's control panel. His fingers tapped an anxious tune as his faithful assistant gave a nod, allowing himself to smile. He found it necessary to raise his voice as the gale whipped up around them. Thank God, the action of rations and wood will go a long way in keeping everyone alive and healthy. We'll see this thing through, all of us. I just got word from McLaren. We and the mining crews are all volunteered for extended shifts. This city will survive. Aye, aye, Captain. The city must survive, the assistant said with a nod. Even with the unfathomable cold that had now struck the city, he couldn't help but feel the few beads of sweat roll down his brow. Whether it was from the soothing heat of the generator, or that ambient dread which every man felt in the moments before disaster. Time would only tell. He wanted to pray to the high heaven that it was only from the first, but knew that nothing would answer. Even God had frozen by now. The two men remained at their posts, troubled only by their thoughts in the wind, feeling the temptation to remove his hood. The assistant knew better, especially seeing how the temperature could drop at any moment. Out of the corner of his eye, he spotted a figure sprinting towards them with the howling streets. It was the foreman. Claren, what's the matter? 
the captain asked as he stood up from the control panels and stepped over to the man, panting and wheezing. The dusty miner took a moment to compose himself, his eyes sunken, confirming the assistant's worst fears. Carbon! Uh, one of the engineers spotted this just now. The cold air we're pumping into the shafts is getting so cold that the roof supports might freeze. Once that happens, we'll have a collapse. Besides the wind around them, there was only silence as the three men all glanced at each other. Finally, the captain gave a nod, deeping his fingers together, as though in prayer. The gentleman closed his eyes. Keep me informed of the situation. Tell the crews to be careful. If the situation gets worse, you send someone to me immediately. Got it. Hi, Captain. I need to tell you of our cold in storage, the captain said as he turned to his assistant. More importantly, I need the projections of how much we have in store, and if the coal mines collapse and we have a sudden reduction in output, then I must know if we have the safety net, or we must do something, uh, extreme. Hi, Captain. Uh, it'll be done. Minus 100 degrees. Sleep had eluded the captain for the previous evening as he spent his entire day huddled around the generator's controls. The heat had soothed his nerves. But as the engineers reported another drop in temperature and the howling gales began to deafen him to even his own thoughts, it seemed as though even the comfort of his technological marvel would fall short. Indeed, the sight of his assistant in a mad dash towards him confirmed all of his worst fears. The supports are failing, Captain, the assistant cried through labored breaths and the storm trying its hardest to drown him out. The engineers gave it only a few of the until the total collapse. We can send people to replace the supports while the coal persists, but it's going to be dangerous work. How much coal do we have left? I need to know projections, the captain said as he barely stirred from his news, looking up at the sky. Closed his eyes and turned to his faithful right-hand man, who could only manage a small shake of his head. I'm sorry, Captain, but I didn't manage to finish in time. I only got a bit of the way through my camp before they needed my help in the infirmaries. I'm sorry, Captain. Uh, I, I truly am. There's nothing to apologize for, the Captain said with the close of his eyes. Several minutes passed as the winds whipped beside them. And an eternity later, the gentleman finally ceased his contemplation as his throat bobbed visibly. I made a vow that I would save as many lives as possible. I place my trust in our crews and in our stores that we can see this through. Tell the men to abandon the lower levels. I won't see any more widows or orphans on our streets. Aye, Captain. I'll go get a word out immediately. Slumping down beside the control panel, the captain watched his assistant walk down the ramp beside him. A few workmen shoveled more coal to the generator's belly, a constant train of wheelbarrows heading towards the one thing which kept the entire city alive. Minus 110 degrees. Is everyone here? The assistant asked as he looked up the thirty or so men that had gathered around here, cold, grim, but determined. He couldn't help but let out a small sigh of relief at seeing just how many of the crew were willing to lay their lives on the line. Putting his helmet on, a man glanced around. Glaren, make a run to the captain. He'll need to know what went on down here. The foreman looked on the verge of tears as he glanced around at the workers who had offered themselves up. Everyone had volunteered, yet the decision ultimately fell on him to who amongst his faithful men would be sent to repair the supports. Looking up at the sky, he hoped God would forgive him. What do you want me to tell him? Tell him! 
I am sorry for disobeying him, but uh, the city must survive. End of story. Story number two. The Ambassadors, written by Finnegar. The alien ambassador turned to his counterpart and growled, Why have you brought me here? The human ambassador waited another few moments for the herd of aides and bodyguards to move away. He knew the outcome of this conversation could determine the fate of his world. Do you know where we are, High Elder? The alien's eyes narrowed. I have studied your maps, he replied. We are in your province of Europe, but I asked you why. You are correct, of course. If rather unspecific, we are just outside Sessimferretto, Italy, and so far for why, a battle was fought here. Ah, one of your recent anti-unification skirmishes, the elder chuckled. Even if you had time to create a world government before we found you, it still wouldn't have saved you from our invasion. Recent? No, uh, this battle took uh, place 2,500 years ago. And as for the invasion... I wanted to ask you about the propaganda you've been spreading. Do you really mean it? Of course, roared the elder. We have no need to exaggerate or lie. Subjugating your world would take 30,000 troops no more. Our technology gives us an insurmountable advantage. The human took a breath. It is interesting you mentioned 30,000, High Elder, as that is the number that died during the battle that was fought here. The elder paused for a moment. The war that was fought here, you mean? No, Elder. Let me be clear. 30,000 men died here. In a single day, during the Battle of Sentinum. Are you trying to scare me, human, by telling me tales of one of Earth's most bloody historical conflicts? This battle isn't famous, Elder. But few historians who specialized in the period will have ever heard of it. The recent human history you've mentioned, the only kind that your people have bothered to review... It's the most peaceful period on record. I'll leave you with one final thought before we return to the negotiating table. Do you know how this human commander here won the battle? The alien stared. I'll answer for you, the human continued. The general intentionally sacrificed himself to rally his troops. They were so inspired by his death that the enemy was quickly routed. I don't believe you, the alien responded. Go look it up, Elder. It's all there. The story of this battle and all the others. We may be peaceful people now, but our history is written in blood. Know this and take the message back to your leaders. Using the technology and tactics of 125 generations past, human suicidal bravery led to the death you find unfathomable in just a single forgotten battle. Try to imagine what we could do today. You may eventually take our world, but we will fight you the entire way, and I can guarantee that it will take you much, much more than 30,000 to do it. End of story.